0: day ladies and gentlemen welcome back to the fresh frozen southerner podcast my name is Jay I hope all is well coming to you from a beautiful day here in northeast Pennsylvania it is currently 14 degrees and it is snowing off and on it's just the kind of day that makes you happy that you live in the frozen northeast also guys if the audio sounds a little strange today um, Santa Claus brought me new equipment I got a Better quality microphone and an audio interface. So if the audio does not sound quite right, I'm still trying to figure out all the settings that I need to be using, What which sounds best in this situation. I'm going to figure it out, but I don't know that I've got everything exactly where it needs to be. So if everything sounds a little strange to you, hopefully it sounds better. Um, it will probably sound better over the next couple of shows as I get everything really dialed in to where I need to have it. But if things sound a little funny this time, that is why. All right, guys. My wife and I were out on Friday evening, and we were down in town. And we happened to drive past the hockey arena that's in Wilkes-Barre, and there was some sort of event. It wasn't a hockey game. It was Disney on Ice or Frozen on Ice. I don't remember exactly what was going on, but we got caught up in traffic. People trying to get into the arena for that event. And as we sat there waiting for traffic to clear, I was watching the electronic billboard outside the arena, and I was reading the ads and messages that were popping up, the coming events, things like that. At one point, a message popped up that said, this facility strictly recommends masks. Now, I'm not a language Nazi. You know, I don't get hung up on punctuation or your choice of words, as long as I can get the gist of what it is you're trying to say. I'm okay with however you choose to word it. But strictly recommended, what the hell is that supposed to mean? That is a nonsensical phrase. Now, I'm sure what they were trying to say was that mask wearing is strongly recommended, but they use the word strictly recommended. Strictly and strongly are similar words. They both start with S-T-R, they both end in L-Y, but they do not mean the same thing. Strongly recommended means we would really like for you to wear a mask while you're inside the arena, but we're going to stop short of telling you that you have to wear a mask. Strictly recommended means that they are very diligent in making the recommendation. Basically what they're saying is is we are going to recommend you wear a mask. We have got people walking around that are going to recommend that you wearing a mask. We have supervisors that are watching those people to make sure they do their jobs. You had better not think that you're going to just breeze your way in here and not go out with a recommendation. That is not going to happen. And it's just one of those things, you know, I say it all the time. Do you think about what you're thinking about? But you see examples like this all the time. I see them almost every day. A good example is just today, we went to the grocery store. My wife has been watching TikTok videos, and she is wanting to make that green goddess dip or salad or whatever it is that's just taken TikTok by storm right now, and we've been picking up some of the oddball ingredients for this salad. And one of the things that she got at the grocery store tonight is nutritional yeast, which... Let me tell you, just knowing that something called nutritional yeast is an ingredient in this stuff is not a great selling point for me trying this dip. But when we got home, I was looking at the bag, and I was reading the little blurb on the back of the bag, and it says that it's vegan. Now, I'm sure it makes some people happy putting the word vegan on the outside of the bag, but yeast is a type of bacteria. Bacteria is in the animal kingdom. How can you call it vegan when you're eating animals? Now, I understand that it's not a chicken or a cow. But if I eat a chicken or a cow, I'm eating one animal. In a spoonful of that nutritional yeast, there's probably hundreds of thousands, maybe even a million dead bacteria in that spoonful. You're eating millions of animals when you eat that stuff, and you're calling it vegan. When I read that phrase, my brain just locked up the brakes, and I just stared at it for a little while. I was like, how can people believe that yeast is vegan? Now, again, I understand that's a microscopic creature people don't really consider that an animal but you're eating animals don't call it vegan i'm kind of amazed that it's legal for them to put that on there i mean most people aren't going to think about it but it's the truth it's that's an animal you're you're, again you're eating millions of animals if you're eating a bunch of yeast but we have a weird relationship with marketing and food and it's this has gone on for years I'm sure a lot of you have eaten at a restaurant where they serve Chilean sea bass. The reason that they call it Chilean sea bass is because when it was called Patagonian toothfish, nobody would buy it. And I admit, Patagonian toothfish doesn't sound very appetizing if you read that on a menu. But the toothfish is one of those what you call trash fish. It's the stuff that fishermen catch all the time, and there's no market for it. So the fishermen take them home and eat them for supper. But they they really just they can't sell it. You know, it's just basically a worthless fish. It, I mean, they taste good and and certainly make a good meal out of it. But nobody's going to go to a five star restaurant and say that hey, what's the uh, fillet of toothfish like tonight? So they actually did a marketing campaign where they came up. They just made the name Chilean sea bass up. A you know, marketing team just decided that sounds very appetizing. It sounds a little bit exotic. People will want to buy Chilean sea bass. But you're buying a toothfish. You're paying... Sometimes it's expensive at restaurants. I've seen it market price for some reason at a couple of restaurants. But it's very expensive. And it's simply because we have decided that that is a very elegant and rare type of fish to eat. And probably a lot of people have not had Chilean sea bass. I don't think I've ever actually ordered Chilean sea bass at a restaurant. But lobster. We have all had lobster at some point in our lives. It is sort of the poster child for an elegant dining experience, and it is always, you know, pretty much any restaurant you go to, it is the most expensive thing you can order at that restaurant. 150 years ago, if you went into a New England restaurant and ordered lobster stew, you were ordering poor man's soup, and that's because it was exactly like the Patagonian Toothfish. It was something that there was no market for. They were very plentiful. And the only time you saw anybody eating lobster, it was a New England fisherman, and he was taking it home to feed his family. He was not taking the lobsters to market because nobody wanted to buy the things. The American Indians had eaten lobsters for millennia just because they were easy to catch. The waters were so full of them, you didn't even need a trap. You could actually wade in and just catch them. And they were so plentiful that the Indians would use them as fertilizer. You know, they would catch them. They wouldn't even eat them. They would just, when they were planting in the spring and they were putting seeds in the ground, they would catch a bunch of lobster and bury the lobster in the ground so that as the lobster began to decay, it would fertilize the ground. The crops would grow better. Now, when the colonists arrived, they would eat the lobsters because, again, they were very plentiful. They were easy to catch. It's a good source of protein. But that was considered like a survival food. They were eating the lobster because it was there and it was easy to get. It was not that that was high-end dining experience. Um, In fact, a lot of the New England colonies had bylaws in place that if you had a servant or a slave, you could only serve lobster to your servants twice a week, and that was actually something that people would sort of use as a way to attract new servants, new employees. They would promise them that they would not force them to eat lobster five and six times a week. At the turn of the century, there was a New England state. I don't remember which one it was, but they actually passed a state law prohibiting lobster from being served more than two nights a week in prisons. In fact, there was an interesting practice in colonial America, and even through the 1800s, people in the northeast, in these places where fishermen would bring in a lot of lobsters, People that ate them would sort of go out of their way to hide the shells. In a lot of these small farmhouses, you had a midden heap, which was basically just where you would throw your trash when you were done with it. But people wouldn't throw the lobster shells into the midden heap. They would bury them or hide them somehow because they did not want anybody that came to the house to see that they were eating lobster. It was shameful. Now, a lot of places at this time, they didn't eat live lobster the way we do. There were canneries all through New England, that just did lobsters. And canned lobster, that sounds you know sort of like a treat to us, but back then, it was thought of the sort of the way people think of potted meat now. That's what you get when you can't afford actual food. It was also considered poor form to send your child to school with a lobster sandwich as their lunch because that means that you were so poor that that was the only thing you could afford to feed your child. Now, we go somewhere and we'll pay $20 for a lobster roll, but but things started to change for the lobster, on the PR front anyway, in about the middle 1800s. And there were two things that came about that caused this to happen. The railroads became a very heavily traveled mode of transportation for people getting from one place to another in, around the country. And there was a aeration tank that was invented that would keep lobsters alive on train rides. So the railroad executives decided, you know, we can barely give these things away from anybody that grew up along the coast. You know, anybody from Boston North looked at those as just just trash. You, know, you couldn't give them to them. But when you got into the interior of the country, nobody knew about lobsters. Nobody knew what kind of reputation they had. And so the railroad started offering lobsters in their dining cars And build them as this very exotic, unusual delicacy from the Northeast. When people from Indiana and Kansas, they didn't have any preconceived notions about the lobster. They were just ordering them off the menu and eating them. And of course, no matter what you think of lobsters, they are freaking delicious. So they got really popular on the railroads, and people started demanding them from seafood restaurants and fish markets. And that is when lobster started to become what we think of today as this very elegant, upscaled menu item. And that lasted right up till the Great Depression, when suddenly nobody had money for any kind of food. And I found an article from Mother Jones. It's from 2005, and this is an excerpt from that. Lobster prices hit their first peak in the 1920s, when the going rate was about the same as today's. But with the depression, depression the luxury lobster market took a dive. No one could afford the dish in restaurants, so the lobster was demoted back to the canneries to provide a cheap source of protein for American military troops. In 1944, soldiers sat in foxholes in France eating lobster. Now, after the war ended and the post-war boom hit, lobsters made it back into the fine dining restaurants. And at that point, demand and the fact that the lobsters were being overfished you know supply went down demand went up and it brings us to where we are today where lobster is one of the most expensive things you can order from most restaurants and as far as overfishing goes they're still rather plentiful generally one to two pound lobsters considered a decent sized lobster a hundred years ago they would routinely catch 35 and 40 pound lobsters i mean you're catching lobsters that were three feet long Can you imagine what one of them would cost in a restaurant today? And I have heard that lobsters are kind of unique in the animal kingdom in that the size and age of the animal does not affect the flavor of the animal at all. So if you could get your hands on one of those, that would definitely be a major feast. And they do still catch them like that every once in a while. I think the the record was set in 1988. It was a 44-pound lobster. But I'd like to know if the people in the New England states, the older generation, if they still kind of look at lobsters and just think, how do people go to restaurants and order that for a meal? Every once in a great while, you'll hear somebody refer to a lobster as a sea cockroach. And that's closer to the truth than a lot of people realize. Uh, Crustaceans are arthropods, same as insects and cockroaches. Lobsters are actually pretty closely related to the cockroach. But that's the kind of odd story of how a water bug that was considered poverty food for the whole of this country's <clears throat> excuse me, history has become a delicacy that we all look forward to eating. And I mean, anytime you hear anybody going on vacation in the New England states, that's all they talk about. You know, we're going to go to a lobster bake. We have to stop at one of those roadside stands and get a lobster roll. And it's all just our perception. And perception can make or break a product. And if you want proof of that, look at the Peloton Bicycle. Now, I only became aware of the Peloton Bicycle a few years ago when they started running 750 commercials a day. But the Peloton Bicycle has actually been around for several years and pretty much in the exact same configuration that you can purchase one now. They've always had the connectivity on it. You can stream live workout classes while you're working. So it's not just you riding a bicycle. You're watching a trainer and you're with other people. But it was like that from day one. And the sales were terrible. So after a few years of these bad sales figures, the marketing team and the board of directors got together and they decided that they were going to make a bold move to try to boost sales of the Peloton bike. And what they did is they made no technical changes to the bicycle, but they jacked the price up almost 100%. And the sales have doubled every year since they did that. Now this is the exact same bicycle, you're paying double for it, and the sales are going through the roof. And it's not just me saying that. I found an interview with the CEO of Peloton on Yahoo Finance. And let me read to you what this gentleman said. It was an interesting psychology that we teased out, Peloton CEO John Foley recalled in an interview last year with Yahoo Finance. In the very early days, we charged $1,200 for the Peloton bike for the first couple of months. And what turned out happening is we heard from customers that the bike must be poorly built if you're charging $1,200 for it. We charged $2,000 for it and sales increased because people said, oh, it must be a quality bike. That is what perception can do for a product. That is how easily swayed we are. And I hate to say it, that is how dumb we are. And it's not just this company, trust me. You hear about data mining on the internet and facebook you know they're just trying to get your information they don't want your personal information they want your personal preferences and they want to know things about you to figure out what demographic you fit into and why you're making these decisions on what you do with your spare time what you do with your money it's a a huge part of business now and it makes a ton of money for these companies and that's basically all the study of economics is. Now, I took an economics course in college because it was a required course for the degree I was going for, and I wasn't looking forward to the class. I thought that it was just going to be about money, and it was basically going to be another science class, or I'm sorry, a math class. But I wound up really enjoying the course. It's not at all what I thought it was. It's it's more the study of why people do the things that they do. It really does not. I mean. Finance is part of it, but we refer to markets and retail sales and things like that as the economy because of economics, not the other way around. And companies pay a lot of money to these analytical firms to figure out why you do what you do and how they can get you to spend money and time with their product. And it goes even deeper than just simply what you're going to purchase, There's a lot of psychology that goes into how businesses are run and how they set up. How often have you walked into a restaurant and you thought to yourself, man, it's a little bit chilly in here. That's not a mistake. They're not scrimping on the heat. How often do you go into a restaurant and it's painted in very bold colors? You know, it's not loud and garish, but it's not something that you would paint your living room in. Those colors were chosen for a reason. Next time you're in a restaurant, pay attention to the wallpaper on the walls, the carpet on the floor. It's always a very busy pattern on the wallpaper and the carpet. If you're in a nicer, more upscale restaurant and you're looking at the art on the wall, the art is always a very busy. They, they choose a lot of modern stuff to where it's not like a painting of a landscape. It's sort of modern art, abstract. It's a lot of colors and everything's very busy. That stuff is chosen for a very specific reason. It's because all of those things and it's right down to the chairs that they choose for their tables. They'll choose chairs that are just comfortable enough for you to sit and enjoy your meal, but not comfortable enough for you to want to sit there. That's why it's just a little bit cooler than what you would be comfortable with, so you won't want to sit there after your meal. That's why the lighting is always a little dimmer than what it needs to be, and so when you're finished with your meal, you'll want to get up and leave. The reason they're choosing this stuff, and you don't realize that these patterns and these bright colors and the, just the slightly uncomfortable temperature. When you're done with your meal, you're not going to hang out and order a second cup of coffee. You're going to get up and go to your car. And the restaurant can seat that table to another incoming customer. All of that stuff is chosen to just subconsciously make you want to get out of that restaurant as soon as you're done with your meal. And that is a staple of the restaurant industry. Everything from fine dining establishments all the way down to McDonald's. Next time you're into McDonald's, pay attention to the booths that you sit in. A lot of them... They're colored and they're contoured in such a way that when you're looking at it, it looks like a cushioned booth from a diner in the 50s, but when you sit down on it, it's just plastic. Now, that's not uncomfortable. Like I say, you can sit there and eat your burger and then get up and leave, but it is nowhere near as comfortable as what it looks like it will be when you're walking over to that booth. In fact, the only food industry, or the only niche of the food industry that does not employ these tactics is a bar Because a bar makes money by selling you drinks, and if you're going to get uncomfortable in the chair and get up and leave after 20 minutes, you're not sitting there buying another drink. So bars and pubs are a little bit different. They try to be cozy and inviting. Every other restaurant you went to is very subtly designed to make you not want to be there any longer than you need to be there. And there are an army of analytics and marketers and psychologists working on this stuff for any business you can think of. The analytics market is about a $300 billion industry per year. And like I say, it's it's an army of people. They know exactly what makes us tick. Every single business that you see in this country spends huge amounts of money and time trying to get these people to tell them how to set their business up. And it is Like I say, it's everything. It's retail stores, restaurants, big box chains, everything. Every segment of the market employs these people to try to figure out how to get you to spend more of your money with them. And it works because they somehow convinced us that an underwater cockroach is worth $60 a plate. All right, guys, that's about all I've got for you today. I appreciate you sitting with me this evening Uh, if you're enjoying the show please leave me a like and a comment and if you really enjoy the show please consider leaving me a subscription it does help me grow my audience and grow the show as always you can leave me a comment at freshrosensoutherner at gmail.com or at the Fresh Rosen Southerner Facebook page alright guys I hope you're having a good start to the work week. On Friday, we're going to do another chapter in Rules for Radicals. I've kind of left that off for a few weeks. I want to get back on that. We're actually pretty close to finishing that. Like I say, it's not a very long book. I think there's three chapters. There might be four left, but we're almost to the end of that. But I hope you guys have a good work week. Uh, Stay safe. Try to stay warm. And I will talk to you again on Friday. Thank you very much.